electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, hope rises for COVID treatments, but is there enough? Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the long road still ahead. We're just not going to have enough supply. We will have to ration these drugs. Tom Friedman, New York Times columnist on innovation post-pandemic. I think coming out of this, once the politics stabilize, we're going to see an incredible era of creative destruction. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author says not all big tech is created equal. I hope they regulate the hell out of Facebook. I don't think all of these tech companies are created the same, and I don't think they all pose the same problem to our social health. Plus, sports are back, but where are all the fans? CNBC's Jabari Young. So much sports out there, but, you know, the, the consumption habits has changed. You know, to make no mistake about that, and sports ratings are, are seeing a decline because of it. Those stories and gearing up for a big shopping week. Here come Amazon Prime Days. I've already started looking for sales. It's Monday, October 12, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've got uh, so much going on this morning. We've got uh, this uh, week's Squawk Planner, two major tech events. First, we got Amazon's uh, sales day. It begins after uh, it was uh, postponed, if you remember, back in July. Uh, now running two days, starting at midnight tonight, Eastern time. So watch out for that. I've already started looking for sales. Yeah. And then Apple holding the big yeah. event tomorrow. Uh, that launch event expected to unveil the new iPhone. Uh, everybody looking for the new 5G iPhones. Apple Watch was saying the phones will include its first major exterior redesign uh, since 2017. And we're going to have a lot more uh, on that as well. On the data front, uh, let's talk about it. We're going to get the latest inflation numbers. We get CPI tomorrow and PPI on Wednesday. Jobless claims and import prices due on Thursday. And retail sales uh, for September are due on Friday. And then tomorrow kicks off a huge earnings season ahead. We'll hear from the big banks. Uh, as you know, we will hear from J&J and also two major airlines. And a busy week for politics. The Supreme Court confirmation hearings uh, for uh, Amy Comic Barrick uh, begins today. And uh, Tr- President Trump saying that uh, he's planning to head to Florida for a campaign rally. That's going to happen tonight. His first time back on the campaign trail since testing positive for COVID-19. The president's doctor saying over the weekend in a memo uh, on Saturday that he's no longer considered a transmission risk to others. Just one week out from President Trump leaving Walter Reed Medical Center for hospitalized treatment for COVID-19, the president says he has immunity from the virus that has killed more than 200,000 Americans. A key to the treatment he received was the still experimental antibody cocktail made by Regeneron. In a video released on Twitter and in a series of media appearances over recent days, the president has talked up the effects of this cocktail, which he received outside of clinical trial for what's called compassionate use. Mr. Trump said he wants to get it out to all Americans. The CEO of Regeneron, Dr. Len Schleifer, said on CBS's Face the Nation this weekend, there are not enough doses to treat the many COVID patients who may need it. 
and the president's case is unique. The president's case is a case of one, and that's what we call a case report. And it is evidence of what's happening, but it's kind of the weakest evidence that you can get. But the real evidence has to come about how good a drug is and what it'll do on average. It has to come from these larger clinical trials, these randomized clinical trials, which are the gold standard. And those are ongoing. On this and more hope for treating COVID-19, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and board member at Pfizer and Illumina, joined Squawk Box today. Scott, it's good to see you. We've got uh, to talk about uh, the president's new uh, uh, new COVID-free di- uh, diagnosis. Also want to talk about Regeneron and also some testing uh, news that, that came up over the weekend. Uh, let, let's start with the president, though. Uh, he does plan to get back on the campaign trail. Is that advisable? Well, it depends on how he's feeling. I mean, it really comes down to his health. With respect to whether or not he's contagious, he's probably not. Um, he's 10 days, more than 10 days out from the onset of symptoms. He's been fever-free for well more than 24 hours. His symptoms have resolved based on what the doctors tell us. They did an interesting test called subgenomic mRNA, which is a test for an intermediate um, form of the viral genetic material that you only get typically when the virus is replicating. So they, they're giving that out as a proxy to suggest that the virus that he has on board is no longer replicating. It's not live virus. He's going to continue to shed virus for a long period of time. We know patients continue to shed virus for a while, but what they're shedding typically is dead virus, virus that isn't replication competent. It can infect other individuals. The only way to know for sure is to culture the virus and culture cells, do something called TCID50. They might have pulled that. They would have pulled that probably fifth uh, on Saturday, and you wouldn't get that back maybe until Monday or Tuesday. So they might well have done that test. You have to do it in a specialized lab. But given that it's the president of the United States, they might have done that test. And also want to talk to you about Regeneron, obviously one of the drugs that he took that he uh, has argued uh, really turned his own situation around Regeneron and how quickly uh, Regeneron um, is going to be available at mass at scale. The CEO over the weekend saying it's not going to be uh, at scale for for quite some time. What has to happen or what could happen to actually get a drug like that or the Eli Lilly drug at scale? Yeah, well, Lilly and Regeneron have gone through great lanes to try to free up manufacturing, domestic manufacturing, to produce these drugs at significant scale. Lilly's going to have a million doses between now and the end of the year. Regeneron will have 300,000. They effectively freed up their domestic manufacturing facilities, moved some of the products that they manufactured here in the U.S. outside the U.S. to get that extra production capacity. And most companies freeze between 12 and 24 months of their bulk biologic product. So they'll burn down perhaps some of their their frozen product as they transition their products out of the U.S. facilities into European facilities to free up that capacity. So it was an extraordinary effort on the part of both companies. Now, what would have had to happen is sometime in April or maybe May, and we talked about it on this show many times, um, the government would have needed to step in and pay some of the existing manufacturers of other products to also move their products out of their domestic facilities to free up that capacity. That never happened. And so we're wholly dependent really upon the the manufacturing capacity that Regeneron and Eli Lilly were able to free up. And it's just not going to be enough. By my estimate that we'll we'll need between 300,000 and 400,000 doses a month just to treat the indicated population, the currently indicated population of high risk individuals based on the current infection rate. So we know infection rates are going to go up. You'd like to expand use of these products if they're demonstrated to be safe and effective. So we're just not going to have enough supply. We will have to ration these drugs. So, so you're, but your, your estimate is 400,000 a month. 
And the question is, do you see a date at which they'll be producing 400,000 a month? I haven't heard any numbers that even come close to that. Yes, yeah, so they'll, they'll produce 1.3 million between now and the end of the year between them. So they'll fall, fall short probably of that. Remember, my estimates are based on the current uh, epidemic. The epidemic's increasing in this country. Um, if we end up having a lot more cases heading into the fall and the winter, which I fear we will, we're going to be even more supply constrained. So there's not going to be enough supply of these drugs to treat, let's say, everyone over the age of 65 and all those with, with um, comorbid conditions that put them at high risk for a bad outcome. We just simply won't have enough. And there's no way we're going to get enough. We would have had to make these decisions back again in April and May. I think that there were you know, a lot of discussions, a lot of people calling for this. It just didn't happen. Whatever we do now is going to help shore up the supply for 2021. But we're kind of locked in where we are. We're not going to be able to bring these online in greater quantities. It takes a long time to convert a manufacturing facility to produce a new biologic to do that tech transfer. You have to do you have to leave a lot of lead time. Hey, Scott, there was uh, some news over the weekend coming out of the World Health Organization where they are now saying that they they tell governments they should not be using lockdowns as their primary means of trying to deal with the with the virus, that there have been too many problems from it and that it's especially devastating for the most vulnerable communities and, and, and the poorest communities. Um, I, I saw it characterized as a flip-flop. What, what are your thoughts on this? What do you think? Well, look, I don't think it's a flip-flop. I think we were in a difficult position back in April and May because we didn't know where the virus was spreading here in the United States. We didn't have any diagnostic tests deployed. And we thought a lot of other cities would be devastated the way New York was. And so we ended up implementing a stay-at-home order nationally when, in fact, we could have titrated um, our mitigation much more effectively, but we needed to know where the virus was and was not spreading. Now we do have the diagnostics deployed, and I think we're going to be able to fine-tune our response much better as this epidemic um, starts to infect certain regions of the country. But other regions of the country maybe aren't similarly effective, and, and more targeted interventions, case-based interventions like tracking and tracing can still work in a lot of parts of the country. So I think the idea that we're going to do a national stay-at-home order, even broad stay-at-home orders in select cities, it's just not going to happen. The popular will isn't there for it. The political leadership on a bipartisan basis aren't going to support it. So those who are saying no more lockdowns here in the United States, I think it's sort of a straw man approach to the argument here because it's just not going to happen. We're in a much better position to target our interventions. You know, the, the, the really when history looks back on us, I think that the critical failing or one of them is going to be the fact that we were so blind to the spread back in April and May and March because we had no diagnostics deployed really in March and April. Doctor, uh, you made a comment actually on our broadcast last week about how well Asia is doing. And I think you made a reference to the, the, the idea that they have uh, about a thousand cases across, uh, you know, large parts of the area. Yet, obviously, you know, we're doing that, uh, you know, every, every day and every week here. What do you think the distinction is? And I ask because you, you said that you believe that we can do a lot more things that are targeted today. And while we can do better than we could do before, we still seem so far away from what others have done and done successfully w without what appears to be lockdowns. Yeah, well, they're doing testing and tracing very aggressively, probably more aggressively than we can because we're just not going to um, surrender certain liberties. So, you know, you'll get you'll get tracked electronically in certain countries in Asia if you don't get a test or if you're in proximity to someone who had COVID, you'll be tapped on the sh shoulder and called in for a test. They also have much better compliance with things like universal masking. I mean, we could be doing a better job on both domains. We don't need to have their level of surveillance state to have better testing and tracing in place. 
Um, and we could be doing a lot better calling on collective action for people to, to wear masks on a more routine basis. Just to give you a basis of comparison, there were 12 cases overnight in a Chinese city, and they're going to test all 9 million residents of that city within probably you know, less than a week, probably three or four days they'll get that done. So they'll, they'll manage to snuff out that outbreak. We could never do that here. Uh, first of all, we don't have the capacity to do it. And if we did, we'd never get anywhere near the compliance. And so that's what those countries are doing. I'm not saying we need to go that far, but we're a long way from even having, you know, some level of, of compliance around testing and tracing. And, and finally, uh, doctor, over the weekend, uh, the ambassador, the Israeli ambassador to India made a comment uh, that they're working, uh, Israel is, with India on a 30-second coronavirus detection test that is effectively a breathalyzer that you'd blow into uh, and that would be available for a very cheap price. Do you know anything about it? Well, a lot of these breathalyzer tests, I've seen some of them, don't do direct detection of the virus. What they're doing is measuring your lung function and looking for changes that are consistent with having COVID. Um, I'm skeptical that you're going to be able to detect those very early in the course of the disease, uh, that they'll be that sensitive. I have not seen one. This might do de direct detection of the virus. I'm not familiar with this particular uh, test, but I've seen others that are not doing direct detection of virus. They're measuring lung function. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, it is great to see you, and thanks for joining us. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas Friedman on post-COVID innovation. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I do believe that we're on the edge of an era of maybe unprecedented creative destruction in the economy, and, and I stress both words. It's going to be incredibly creative, but incredibly destructive. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. It is just three weeks and one day from the Election Day 2020. The uncertain recovery of the U.S. economy is front and center. And joining us right now to talk about that and just how much he thinks economic concerns will be at the forefront of voters' minds this time around is Tom Friedman. He, of course, is the New York Times foreign affairs columnist and author of Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. That and a lot of other books, too. Tom, it's great to see you this morning. You too, Becky. Great to be with you. So it has been the economy stupid for so long in every election, it seems. Is it different this time? It really does feel different, Becky. Uh, I think you have a lot of Republican voters um, uh, aligned with Trump. Uh, it feels for reasons of um, people feel overwhelmed by the pace of change. Uh, the fact that we're going from a white majority country to a minority majority country. Um, the fact that um, we're seeing uh, rapid changes in certain social mores, uh, the fact that um, uh, jobs are changing radically and the needs for jobs. I think you have a lot of people on one side who see in President Trump someone who could slow down that change, maybe stop the win. Uh, on the other side, uh, you see, a, um, I think, a, a lot of people attracted to Joe Biden for 
for reasons that they fear, Becky, our country is being torn apart. Um, uh, and they they see that as partly a product of a very divisive president. And they want someone to pull us together. Um, and so th that's kind of the broad division I see out there in the voting public. Yeah, Tom, I think about the economy and it's it's impossible to really know what's happening because things are changing so rapidly. There's so much uncertainty surrounding uh, coronavirus, whether the cases start to rise again. I, I mean, it just seems like it'd be pretty hard to base it on the economy this time around because your perspective on the economy depends entirely on what you've been through the last few months and what you are anticipating you'll be through the next few months. And, and, and it's almost impossible to tell that. I, you know, I would say broadly, Becky, I, I do believe that we're on the edge of an era of maybe unprecedented creative destruction uh, in the economy. And, and i stress both words. It's going to be incredibly creative, but incredibly destructive in that, I mean, never have more people had access uh, to cheap tools of innovation, never have more people had access to powerful cloud computing for pennies, never have more people had free money, um, and never have there been more problems to solve. And so I think coming out of this, um, once the politics stabilize, we're going to see an incredible era of creative destruction. An incredible era of creative destruction. Creative is the good part of that, more jobs being creative. But the destruction part, what, what does that mean in terms of what would be required for just a social safety net for those who kind of get caught up in the process and, and, and spit out? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I, I support you know, the stimulus that um, we're doing, right, that we're discussing now and that we've already done. But what actually disappoints me is that if you compare it to the stimulus China has done, Becky, and, and the stimulus that the EU has done, those have included capital investments in things that will make their economies more productive. We are really just, you know, enabling people to, to get through the month. It does pain me that we're spending all this money uh, and not investing in rural broadband or, or maybe a program to make every single government building more energy efficient that would actually drive down long-term costs and at the same time drive up a clean energy industry. So um, uh, that's one of the things worrying me right now about how this money is being spent. You think we'll get a stimulus bill, let's just say, A, before election bill, or before election day, or B, before the end of the year? You know, it feels like we're going to um, at least get one of some size before the end of the year because there are just too many people hurting, Becky, you know, as, as you alluded to, you know. Um, there are people who got through this pandemic just fine. I, I work for a newspaper that could easily have everybody work at home and um, uh, and the news business generally uh, saw an increase in demand. Um, you know, the only pain for me is is not being able to go to, to my office. There are other people who have been completely devastated. Um, uh, and coming out of this, you know, w we really have to think about how we undergird those people. So I have to believe there's gonna be a stimulus before, after, this thing is so volatile. Uh, it's really hard for me to predict. Tom, let's talk a little bit about big tech, big technology and the regulation it's facing. And I think about all of the technology companies that are really doing so well because of the acceleration that we're seeing right now. You mentioned cloud computing and things. But when you start thinking about some of these really big companies, um, social media too, how do you think they are impacted by this increase in acceleration? Well, you could break up Facebook for me tomorrow. Um, I think it's insane that a single person controls, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, uh, and that's way too much power in the hands of someone I think has been incredibly reckless. But um, uh, the others, uh, you know, Apple, Netflix, um, you know, Google, uh, 
you know, I find myself really torn. On the one hand, um, I really appreciate the efficiencies of Google. Uh, having written, you know, books, I've had this personal assistant now, you know, for this for the last couple of decades. Uh, she never asks for a raise. She gets better every day. Um, uh, uh, she's just incredibly smart. She works 24-7, 365. Her name is Google. And anything that diminishes that efficiency for me, that's a real loss. At the same time, I recognize a company that gets that big that can devour up all competitors becomes, you know, anti, uh, anti-competitive. What I really think is is the challenge before us, Becky, and this is a new book I'm actually working on right now, is that we actually need a whole different way of, of governing. Um, uh, the old binary left-right way, or, or in the case of monopolies, for instance, you know, break them up because they're big and they do consumer harm. Um, I think you have to think very, very differently in the world we're going into. And the only way to actually govern in these com- companies is going to be with some kind of ecosystem solution that brings together you know, consumers, regulators, and the companies themselves. But I think we got to really rethink this whole thing actually about governing itself, which is why I believe actually all, if you have noticed, all major political parties in the industrial world have actually blown up in the last few years. I mean, you know, the Tories blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, party became a Marxist party over in England. The liberals disappeared. The Republicans became a cult of Trump. The Democrats will blow up uh, if and when they get back into power. France is the only country in the world that has a leader uh, with no party and an opposition with no leader. Uh, I have no clue who governs Italy today, but I know it's not Christian Democrats. Something's going on that all these binary left-right parties are blowing up. And I believe it has to do in part because there's a mismatch between the way these parties govern during the Industrial Revolution and the kind of governance we need today, which is much more ecosystem-like than uh, the old uh, top-down right-left model we had before. Yeah, Tom, I want to go back just to what you said about technology companies and regulating them. And I've been thinking about it because we, I don't know if you've heard this, there's a story in the Financial Times today that suggests that the European Union is looking at a hit list of American big tech companies that they would regulate more harshly, um, that they'd be regulated more than smaller counterparts. Uh, They would have to do things like even share information with their competitors. And when I heard that, I kind of got my back up because we're talking about regulating these companies here and doing all of these things. They're going to be facing much more scrutiny from overseas regulators, too. And it just worries me that at some point we're going to look around and say, oh, no, all the great things we had coming from technology, we kind of blew it up and, and, and squandered what we had, took out the good in trying to regulate them and take out the bad, we took out the good, too. Do you worry about that? I worry about it a real lot. And I, I go back to that you know, example about Google. Um, uh, I realized you know, Google is huge, yet it, has, it brought great value uh, to my life. And something that made Google less efficient, it searches less quick and comprehensive, uh, would really worry me. At the same time, I look at Facebook and the fact that it now um, uh, so dominates the news media landscape. So many people are getting their news from an organization that is largely unedited. And um, I hope they regulate the hell out of Facebook. Uh, I I don't think all of these tech companies are created the same, and I don't think they all pose the same problem to our social health. But do you think that there's going to be something that sweeps everybody up in the same sort of, with the same brush? I'm mixing my metaphors, but you know what I mean. I worry about it, you know, the Europeans. I mean, you know, if, if they had founded and uh, uh, were the homes of these major tech companies, I wonder if they would be 
uh, you know, taking this kind of aggressive attitude. I, I, I worry about this coming from uh, people who, you know, also feel a competitive disadvantage. At the same time, maybe we should begin an ecosystem discussion here in America where we bring together, you know, legislators, regulators, companies and consumers into a, a new kind of dialogue, not not just sitting back and waiting for the antitrust department uh, to take on these companies, but actually begin a dialogue here and define what is it about these companies we want to preserve? Where is their monopoly power actually harming consumers uh, and innovation? And I think we should get ahead of that conversation, not wait for the Europeans to do it. Yeah. Steve Ballmer was with us last week. I think it was last week. Who knows? The days run together. But he said that he thinks these CEOs from these companies need to sit down with the regulators and be serious about it and say, what do you need us to do? Uh, get in a room and start making it happen with the hindsight of what Microsoft had to go through. Do you think any of these companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, you know, Alphabet, any of those companies are more likely to be the first one to do that successfully? You know, that I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I know vaguely, you know, the, the leaders of all these companies over the years as a journalist yeah. and, um, you know, all smart people. But um, uh, again, I, I really distinguish between, you know, the tech enabling pat platforms and, and a Facebook, which I think has become toxic. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. I, I, I don't think Zuckerberg would be the first one who'd be able to do that for sure. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe a Bezos, maybe a Tim Cook. Um, if you think about the people who have been pretty good at navigating a lot of pretty crazy things that have come to this point. You know, it's, 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 um, healthy, but we can, it's healthy, we can leverage the European pressure, but I wouldn't want them running the yeah. show on this. <laughs> right. That's a really good point. Hey, Tom, it's great seeing you. We hope to see you again soon, but thank you for your time. Always. Thanks, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, sports are back in the stadiums, but fans are mostly missing from the stands and the TV ratings. I need those spectators and those fans in order to feel engaged a little bit more. I need those spectators and those fans if I wanted to go bet on a game to kind of feel engaged a little bit more. I managed to lose money, even betting on the Lakers. We'll be right back. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. A lot of sports yesterday. This is uh, one aspect of it. The Los Angeles Lakers are leaving the NBA bubble with a trophy. The Lakers won the 2020 NBA championship Last night's uh, game six over the Miami Heat. It's the team's first title since 2010 and the 17th uh, total championship, which ties the Celtics for the most of any team. And LeBron James became uh, the fourth player in history to win a championship uh, now with three different teams. It was a, a, a boondog, a plethora yesterday of, uh, of things to watch. We had, a, uh, we had the Rays, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays playing Houston. 
I lost money there, but I, I did make a little on the first because uh, Houston scored first. I managed to lose money, even betting on the Lakers. <laughs> uh, How'd you do that? Because I had the over. The over was stupid. I'm Have stupid. you not learned your lesson yet, dummy? When, when you bet $5 and you, do the, you pick the team to win yeah, but and don't the, do over, the over, the under. Just pick somebody. Huh? To, don't do the over, under. Then it's, you get like, uh, if you bet on the Lakers, you put $5 down, you're going to win $8. If you bet on the over, so the last Ooh. game, the, the, the last uh, game from a couple of days ago, they, I mean, it was like 230 points or something. Last night, I'm like, and I watched the first, uh, the first, I guess I watched about the first half, and it's like, okay, the Lakers defense, they really ramped it up, but it's like the heat, it's like you guys were, you were so good. You, you know, Jimmy Butler, what's going on? And then last night, the Lakers just really smothered them. I don't even think they got to 200 points, much less 215. But I'm okay. I'm okay. I did okay with, uh, what else did I? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to sound like a total addict. I did have money on, on who would score first. And the Lakers, they win the tip almost every <laughs> single time. They win the, Andrew doesn't want to hear any of this. He's so bored already. But anyway, they win the tip. The first, even though you have all those basketball cards. That's what I don't understand. They win the tip the first time every time. But a lot of times they go down and throw a clunker up at this time. Whew, perfect. And so that was okay. Anyway, sports viewership numbers, though, continue to disappoint compared to last year. Events like the NBA Finals, baseball playoffs, and even football have seen some pretty serious declines. One bright spot, WNBA Finals. Despite a serious sweep for the Seattle Storm, viewership increased 15%. Year over year, joining us now, our own Jabari Young, CNBC.com sports business reporter, and Patrick Risch, a director of the sports business program at Washington University in St. Louis. Jabari, I'll just start. Just to, are, are you watching more, less, or the same sports now that we're all like basically kind of locked up at home? I'm watching so much more that I don't really understand the ratings. You know, I'm actually watching a little bit less on days, and then I'm watching a little bit more. It depends on, you know, the games. It depends on how I'm feeling. Um, and I, I think that's most of America, you know, with, with so much sports out there. And not only that, uh, but, you know, the sports as well as other things that you want to watch now. You know, you're on Netflix more. You're on Disney Plus more. And I just think that after March 11th when the NBA closed down and other leagues follow, um, you started to see people get their lives back in some way. And, and they just started to utilize it in other ways when they go to, to tune on the turn on the television. And I, I don't think it's all, always sports all the time. And, and again, you know, so much sports out there, but you know, the, the consumption habits has changed, you know, to make no mistake about that. And sports ratings are, are seeing a decline because of it. Yep. Patrick, it has to do with streaming, I guess, as Jabari pointed out. There's also a lot going on for me. It's like, you know, I started with the French open yesterday and watched, uh, you know, Nadal just dominate. And then I had my choice after that, I, you know, all the NFL, you got the, the, you know, what turned out to be the final game of the, of the NBA. And then you even had the start of the American League, uh, you know, championship series. So I don't know, I, I feel like maybe I need to get a life or something outside the house. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally happy. And I've been, and we waited for it. And I thought we waited so long for it that we were, you know, kind of embarrassed that people aren't more excited about being able to watch these things. Well, Joe, I think at the very beginning when the NBA came back, they did have a, 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 an uptick because there was nothing else going on. But what's happened since is there's just a glut. There's so much 
to consume. As you mentioned last night, you had the NBA Finals, you had the Game 1 of the American League Championship Series, and you had a Sunday night football game between the Vikings and the Seahawks, one at the, in, the, in the dying moments by Russell Wilson. So I think this is a big part of it. Now, we, we can't overlook the fact that clearly right now we have a very uh, contentious presidential debate and the cable news ratings are very high right now. They're over 30% increase from last year. Generally speaking, sports ratings do decline in election years and of course this year is, but I, I don't put a lot of stock, though there may be a small minority of people that are not watching these games because they have issues with social justice issues. I think that is a very, very, very small percentage of why the ratings are down. It's, and I always talk about, for me, it's, and, and I really was just thinking about it. If it was, if I was like really putting a lot of money down on DraftKings or something, it wouldn't matter whether I put $5 or, it, it, when, it, when it starts going south, I feel sick to my stomach with uh, watching what happened to Dak yesterday. I, I'm, st I'm not over that yet. And then who do they send in? Andy Dalton. I was like, no, no, no. And did you see the very first snap? You're like, oh, you're snapping it to me? So I was supposed to, oh, sorry. Okay, next time I'll ask. It was unbelievable. But I don't see why that's not a, a, a tailwind, Patrick, really. A much bigger tailwind than it should be now that, you know what, it's not legal enough in, in enough states, I don't think. Well, Joe, you bring up a great point because one thing that everybody that works in the sports industry has been talking about is the gamification of sports. Ted Leonosis with the Washington Wizards, uh, the Capitals, they're putting that into their facility where people can game once people come back. I know other teams are doing this as well, and even professional football teams. I mean, here's a league that didn't want anything to do with Vegas. Now they have a team in Vegas and we have a summit coming up at Washington University on November 6th. We have a couple of guests that are coming in from different teams and talking about their new corporate partnerships with companies like MGM Bet and Points Bet. So uh, yeah, I, I think that that's increasing the, the engagement, but unfortunately you have all these other factors that are just fraying the uh, viewership. And I don't, and Patrick, let me jump in. I don't want to leave out the fan aspect either. You know, right. Joe, sometimes, you know, when you're looking at these games, television networks really don't like when there's nothing in the stands because it creates the illusion that the game isn't important enough to stay tuned in. You know, and I know I've created, I had that illusion a few times myself watching the NBA Finals. You know, listen, the product, great. I don't want to take anything away from the NBA product. The product on the court is great. But me personally, just me, I need those spectators in those stands in order to feel engaged a little bit more. I need those spectators and those fans if I wanted to go bet on a game to kind of feel engaged a little bit more. Now with the micro-marketing betting that's going to be coming in soon, they need those fans back in the stands. And so I was tuned into the Eagles and Steelers game. Why? Because just a little bit of people was in the fans. You saw right. a little bit of stuff kids selling. The little boy raising his world, rolling his top. I like to see stuff like that, and I know television networks do too. I think that's a key point, uh, Jabari. And, and a lot of the, uh, the college football, they got, I don't know, maybe 25%, but I hear them and they're still there and they're excited and watching what's going on. And I'll tell you, I, I was watching the other day, I was watching a, uh, I was watching a baseball game and bases were loaded, okay? And, and you know, they're, they're, if, if he walks in a run, I mean, it's gonna tie the game or they're gonna go ahead. And it, the pitcher was so nervous but there was, it was silence in the stadium. Yeah. It's just the guys in the dugout yeah. yelling. If they had been in, in the away, um, you know, in the away stadium and the fans had been there yelling at him about throwing a ball or, or walking it, it would have been a totally different ball game. 
so to yeah. speak. And think about I think those wide shot screens when the TV networks get to zoom back, especially in baseball in the postseason, when you're waving your towel. I mean, that creates adrenaline for me. Right. I don't know what it does for you, Drug Joe and Patrick, but it. it creates adrenaline for me so much. I want to tune up, turn up the TV just to feel a part of the action. So believe me, I can't wait till fans get back in the stands. I can't wait to get back into the arenas myself just to watch the games. And Man, I'm sure we know, television yeah. networks miss that. Yeah, we were like doing the, the just the simple dollars and cents. Well, you know, the fans, you know, they're, it's much more important, the TV rights and watching on TV, but you forget it's almost uh, synergistic to have those fans there. It makes it much, yeah. much better to watch uh, when you're there. Well, I Absolutely. think it's all going to, uh, I mean, and there is a glut. I can't remember when I was watching, you know, NFL, baseball, uh, NBA, all at the same time. It's a little bit weird, but I, for me, it's been, it's been fun. All right, uh, and Jabari, I think, you know, NBC is going to, uh, you, you just can't stop the, the synergy between, and I'm using that word a lot, but a, a FanDuel or a, or a DraftKings, that's going uh, to be the way people consume sports in the future, uh, Patrick. I mean, even, even if it's, you know, and it's $5, $2 on a game, yeah. I think that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And let's absolutely. not forget, yeah. you know, they want to get engaged and you know we're going to see more and more states joe uh you know doing this i know that the nba has been working very hard on uh, trying to leverage these states getting them to pass state legislation for legalization of gambling we're going to see more and more of it there's already 15 to 20 states there passed it and legalized it we're going to see more in the future do you jupari foresee um I mean, even more uh, dis distributors getting into this. Is this going to be a Google or an Amazon? It, 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 is this going to, this decline in ratings, is it going to uh, accelerate that move to, to somewhere else? Or, or do the big media players stay the same, do you think? You know, I think it may alter a little bit, depending on the league. Uh, but re re listen, you know, remember, sports is like this. It's an up and down thing, Joe. By the end of these uh, TV rights deals, Ratings might very well be up, uh, and then at that point, you know, the networks are going to have to come. But remember, there's nothing more compelling on TV than live entertainment, and live sports is still the way to go, and that's what's holding up the networks, and I think that they, they missed that. Uh, now that we have that back again, it's just so much to choose from. But with anything, I think leagues like the NBA and the NHL, what they've learned is they can't play into the summertime. They cannot go into early fall. You better go back into your regular schedules. That's why when Adam Silver says that they want to get an 82-game in schedule for next season, I don't really buy it because I think the NBA wants to get back to their normal schedules next October. And in order to do that, you got to shorten the season. We'll see how it goes, though. Yeah. I mean, I already know there's a baseball game on at four today, and then there's another one on later. Then there's a football game on. Did you know there's an NFL game tomorrow, guys? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, I might watch that because ain't nothing else going on. The NBA is over now. I, I think you might start to see NFL. I, I know. Now that the other leagues are kind of uh, are over. Crazy what I look at first thing when I'm sitting there. Uh, first thing. Anyway, that TMI. Anyway, thank you, uh, Jabbar. Thank you, uh, Patrick, for, for a great, uh, great discussion. Um, Thanks, guys. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC, 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. On Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating or review and tweet us anytime at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 